Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I think about these kids literally every day. I wonder, somebody has to be missing them, or, or I would think somebody's missing them. And I've dedicated so much time to trying to find a mom and dad, an aunt and uncle, a brother, a sister, because I know they have to be out there somewhere. It's October 18th, 1983. A couple decides to take advantage of the early fall weather to enjoy one of their favorite pastimes, foraging for mushrooms. They go hunting in a field off Highway 41 near Lake Village in Newton County, Indiana. What they find there, near an old barn and some oak trees, is shocking and gruesome. Four bodies, all young men, and all victims of a serial killer whose legacy has endured for over a quarter century. I'm Steve French. This is Unsolved Mysteries, The Nameless Victims. Back in the 80s, it was scrub brush and trees. And there was a barn with a silo and then a small ranch-style house. It was abandoned for years and there was just a, a dirt driveway that went back into the barn. And they were poking around the barn and just they just came upon them. Three white males, one black male, and they were in, in a very shallow grave with just some leaves thrown over the top of them. So they were very easy to find. The three white males were found buried side by side the fourth body, which was the black male, was buried about 50 yards away from the, the other three. They were partially skeletonized. Coroner Scott McCord knows a lot about Newton County's history when it comes to bodies that have been buried there. Located in the northwest corner of the state, about 30 miles outside of Chicago, it's just far enough away to feel like you're in the middle of the country and just remote enough if you need to dispose of a dead body without any witnesses. We were kind of the dumping grounds for the mafia. It was not unusual for us to find one or two bodies a year. The Spilatro brothers were found here in Newton County, which was a big mafia hit. 
the movie Casino actually involves them. At the very end of it, two guys are beaten to death and buried in a cornfield. Well, they were buried in Newton County. So actually, it wasn't a shock. The part that was a shock was that there were so many, that there were four. Needless to say, that created a large police response. And two of them were relatively quickly identified as as Michael Bauer was 22-year-old male and John Bartlett, a 19-year-old male. There is no way to trace the other two victims, both young males in their teens or early 20s. When found, all four victims had been dead for months, viciously stabbed to death and left partially clothed. Each carefully positioned, face up, then loosely buried under sticks and leaves. Investigators immediately recognize that the murders are nearly identical to several other young male homicide victims, all linked to an elusive predator dubbed the Highway Killer. Fast forward 25 years. It's now 2008, the year Scott McCord is elected coroner for Newton County. He's in his new office unpacking boxes of old records left behind by the previous coroner. Just one day when I went up there to start doing some cleaning and get things set up, I ran across these two boxes. When I picked up the boxes and kind of shook them, it was very light. There was very little weight to it. So I knew it wasn't papers that were in there. But the sound that it made kind of sent chills down my spine. I knew there was something in there that should not be in there. The boxes were just old, the old banker's box type, you know, with the, the little string on the side. One had victim three written on it and the other had victim four. Nothing else. There was no other clue to what might be inside these boxes. When I opened them, shocking is not quite the word that you could use to describe that. New to the job, and you open a box up and and you see a skull staring back at you. The complete skeletons were in the box. Initially, it was a shock, and then it made me mad that that's the way they were treated. Inside one of them, there was just the corner of a piece of paper that had the state police case number on it. So I contacted the state police and had them reference the cases for me. When they did, they said, well, those are victims of Larry Eiler. I said, why, why are you worried about it? That case is closed. And I said, uh, no, I have the skeletal remains of two of them in my office. The skeletons are all that remain of the two unidentified young men found stabbed to death near the abandoned barn 25 years earlier. How could this happen? Why did no one care? At that moment, Scott vows to identify these two forgotten victims and return them to their families. It's our job as coroners to bring closure, to make a positive identification on someone and to bring closure to the families. And I think somewhere along the line, the ball got dropped. I honestly don't know how the skeletons of these kids could be left in cardboard boxes all these years, sitting in someone's closet. I gave them names of Adam and Brad, A and B. People can forget numbers very easily, but you can't forget someone's name. The good thing is, is that these bodies were intact. Animals hadn't gotten to them yet, so there was there was no scattering of the bones. So each of the skeletons that I have are 100% complete. So I had a complete body in each box. I moved them into a tote, a container that could be secured, and I took them down to Indianapolis University. They have two forensic anthropologists 
and they took the bones and they just basically put these kids back together as you would see on TV with the skeleton on a on a big table that's exactly what they did Scott knows that the best way to identify these two young men is to retrace the footsteps of their killer Larry Eiler Eiler is believed to have murdered at least 21 male victims that he picked up along the interstate between Illinois and Indiana and as far south as Kentucky. All the bodies were found in close proximity to the highway. The victims were not necessarily gay. Some of them were young men who were hustlers. In other words, they would do anything for drug money out on the streets. Geraldine Kolarik was a journalist in Chicago covering crime back in the 1980s. She found stories using old-school reporting techniques, developing sources called beat checks. Beat check is having a source and calling them every day and seeing what was happening. Corners would lead me to murders. I would call, are you ready? Seven corners every morning. After gathering details on dozens of murder cases, Geraldine sees a pattern to the grisly homicides. Mickey Babcock, who is now the sheriff, and I remember calling him and saying, you know what, this is crazy, but I think that this is a serial killer. We have now 12 bodies that I have kept track of up in Indiana and some from Illinois. So the sheriff said, Jara, thanks and everything. Why don't you tend to your stories? We'll tend to being cops. And I said, sure, Mickey. And later that night, I get a phone call at my home. And he says, Agatha Christie, you have one heck of a story. News quickly spreads about a serial killer abducting and murdering young men around the Midwest. And a hotline is established. One tip that comes in gives the license plate of a possible suspect. And that clue breaks the case wide open. On September 30th, 1983, they stopped a pickup truck in Indiana, Lowell, Indiana. A police officer saw two men get out of a pickup truck and go down to a ditch. He ran the truck license and it said, the man is wanted for questioning by a task force on a series of possible murders. That man is 32-year-old Chicago native, Larry Eiler. The police search Eiler's truck and find incriminating evidence. A knife smeared with blood, a cable, and even flecks of blood inside his boots. Larry Eiler is charged with murder. But there's a problem. The police didn't have a warrant to search the truck. His constitutional rights were violated. The evidence had to be suppressed and could not be used against him in the murder. Without admissible evidence or confession... The murder case against Larry Eiler is dismissed. Geraldine was in the courtroom the day that he was released. It was just the Gay Life newspaper and myself. And that's when the sheriff looked at me and he says he's free to kill. It's just a matter of time before he kills again. Originally, when all of this was going on, the police were attributing this to the gay community and gay killings because Larry Eiler was gay. But he was an opportunity killer and a rage killer. Six months after his release, Larry Eiler is arrested for another murder, and this time, the charges stick. He's sentenced to die by lethal injection, but makes a deal to avoid the death penalty 
if he gives up details about his crimes. He gave individual confessions for all of the kids that he killed. And he named names on the ones that he could remember, but he couldn't remember these two. But he specifically was able to tell when and where he picked them up. His confessions weren't very long, weren't very detailed, but it, it gave at least an indication of when and where. Whenever he would get into an argument with his boyfriend, he would go out and, and kill them. He would take his rage out on anybody he could find. He would offer the kids drugs and alcohol. And the drugs that he gave was called Placidil, which would render the person unconscious. And then he would take them to wherever he was going to kill them and wait for them to, to start to come to. And he'd have them tied up and he would stab them to death. He would kind of bury the bodies. He wouldn't put them on the side of the road. He'd take them into a forest area. And he would cover them with some dirt. He didn't have a shovel or anything. He'd cover them with dirt, leaves and everything, and just leave them there. The identification from the victims, their IDs, their social security cards, whatever they had as an ID on them, those all disappeared. The remote barn in Newton County was one of Eiler's favorite spots to bring his victims. Here, investigators found evidence of how he killed the young men. When the police finally discovered the bodies, there were signs that he had tied these kids up to one of the posts inside the barn. He had like ropes that were used. So, so the killing actually occurred inside the barn and then he would take the bodies outside and bury them. When I say buried, he didn't do a very good job of burying, obviously, since the bodies were found by mushroom hunters. But he, he did at least try to, I, I don't want to use the term clean up, but he tried to make things as neat as possible. It was a perfect area for him. It was a nice secluded area that he wanted to keep reusing. But I, I believe that those were the only four in Newton County. Hey, Unsolved Mysteries listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone in any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. There's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for family members, and sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with Gift Mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for my fitness fanatic sister. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. The one pattern what's really strange is that there was always a series of phone calls that the police found near where they believed the person was murdered. They would order phone records. Remember, this is the time of the pay phones, right? Where that barn is, it was a pay phone off the highway. He would call his lover, John, 
and who knows what it, how long. Some of the conversations lasted five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Some were quick, some were long. And we wonder why he was calling him. Was it to say, come over here? Or was it to say, I did something and I feel bad or you know what I mean? And, but he'd always call his lover, John. Larry Eiler died in prison of AIDS in 1984. And along with him died all hope of getting more details about the identity of his forgotten victims. Since discovering the skeletons more than a decade ago, Coroner Scott McCord has spent whatever free time he has searching for clues to help identify Adam and Brad. He's gone through every shred of evidence found in the barn, and he's read every word of Larry Eiler's confession, which is where he found one clue that could help identify the victim that he named Adam. In Larry's confession, he admits to picking this kid up hitchhiking along US-41, where US-41 and, and 63 join just north of Terre Haute, Indiana. And if you follow over the interstate, it takes you right into East St. Louis. One day out of sheer boredom, sitting down going over the information on these kids. And with Adam, he had a red and white belt that had the word devil stitched into it. And I just, I Googled Red Devil as maybe a school mascot or any way that Red Devil might come up. And I found that there are two, maybe three schools along the interstate that runs into Terre Haute from East St. Louis that have mascots that are the Red Devils. That's how I came up with the thought that maybe he was from the East St. Louis area. He was just hitchhiking. He was literally at the wrong place at the wrong time and got in the truck with the wrong person. And that was his undoing. With Brad, I don't have a clue. Brad could be literally from just about anywhere. In his detailed confessions, Larry Eiler refers to most of his victims by name. But in the case of Scott's two unidentified skeletons, Eiler remembers only that they were easy prey for his violent impulses. Unfortunately, even if the two young men had been reported missing at the time, it's possible investigators weren't able to connect the missing persons case to Eiler's victims. 80s, you know, a lot of your smaller police departments didn't have a computer system to enter data into. So maybe the reports just got lost in the shuffle. It was antiquated back then, and they didn't have the system. Kankakee didn't have any idea about what was happening in Indiana. Indiana had no idea what was happening in Kankakee or in Lake County, Illinois, back in the 1984s. It's also possible the two victims were estranged from their families, with no one to report them missing. Larry Eiler was a gay serial killer who preyed mostly on gay men, and in the early 1980s, his victims may have been discriminated against by authorities. I felt that there was a homophobia out there. If these were young women that were disappearing, it would have been all over the news. There were some things that were said to me when I first took these cases on about just leaving them alone. And some of the statements that were made kind of shocked me about the attitude of the people that were supposed to care. If you do any reading at all on the Larry Eiler case, everything was attributed to him being gay. So they automatically thought all of these kids must be gay. Again, this is just a supposition on my part, but I think that a lot of parents were probably either ashamed to admit that their son was gay 
I can't imagine that going on as long as it has. But that's the only thing I can figure is is somebody should be out there that's missing them and should understand that we don't care about your sexual orientation now. But that's what I think happened back in the 80s. And that's I think that's why once the case was closed, I think that's why everything just kind of came to a screeching halt. In the years since the unidentified remains were found, not only have attitudes changed, but so has forensic technology. At Indianapolis University, anthropologists have managed to unlock clues to Adam and Brad's true identities. They were able to find, had there been any prior fractures of, of the bones, were the teeth you know, missing or of bad dentition, good dentition, fillings present, anything that would help identify them. They make an interesting new discovery on the skeleton named Brad. There was still some tissue and they were able to soak that tissue and find a tattoo that was totally missed back in the 80s. He actually had two tattoos on his right forearm, a cross with two dots above it. We've tried to figure out what that might mean. It, it looks, it's not a professional tattoo. It, it looks like a, almost looks like a jailhouse tat. I had a contact in Fort Wayne, Indiana with the police department there, the gang unit, and he ran that and he could not find a match for it. So what it actually is, is we don't know, but he has a cross with two dots and then there's a small rectangular shape tattoo as well. Brad is a white male with reddish brown, medium length hair, 17 to 22 years old, 5'5 to 5'10 with, with average build. He was found wearing the ankle high hiking boots, size 10 and a half, the button pocket brown slacks with a 30 inch waist. New details also emerge about the black male nicknamed Adam. The forensic anthropologist puts him at anywhere between 15 and 20 years old. He had short cropped hair, around 5'10 to 6 foot tall, and best weight guess was 140 to 160 pounds. He was wearing Levi jeans, a gold belt buckle with the word jeans on it, and hush puppy style boots with the side buckle, which was popular back then. In 2016, after spending eight years searching for the identity of these two young men, Scott decides to hold a funeral in their honor. We held it at our government center and the local cemetery here in, in my hometown actually donated a crypt in the mausoleum so that the boys could be stored there in, in hopes of one day, if they're ever identified, we can just go to the mausoleum and open it up and get them out and get them returned to their families. Before the skeletons are placed in the crypt, DNA samples are taken, hoping that forensic genealogy can be used to find a family match or at least narrow down the search to a geographic area. It's going to take somebody entering their DNA into the system. If they opt in to where we can search, maybe we can get a hit, but that's, you know, it's, it's going to take something that sparks someone's interest that says, hey, I remember a kid back in the 80s that kind of resembles him. That's what it's going to take. It's, it's something that's been left undone for too long. These kids, they, there has to be family out there. there. There just simply has to be. And somebody needs to know where they're at. So I just took it upon myself to do it. When I first found out 
that Scott, the coroner in Newton County, wants to identify them. You know what? I felt like crying because it's like somebody still cares as much as I do. It's one of those things that it becomes personal after a while. These are kids that, well, I say kids, but they're my age now. We're basically running out of time because their families are going to be gone if they're not already. These are somebody's son, somebody's brother, and they've always back in their mind, whatever happened to him? Is he still alive? Where is he? Why hasn't he ever called? There's a lot of people out there that are web sleuths. That's what they do is they, they surf the internet trying to help solve these cases. And every now and then I'll get somebody that will send me, even if it's just you know a random name or whatever, and I follow up on every one of them until the very end, until I can exclude them. I used to get phone calls. As a matter of fact, I had just gotten one a few weeks ago. At 1.30 in the morning, a young man called me and was going to give a tip. I was actually out camping when I received the phone call, and I asked the person to text me the information, and they never did. So it kind of ended right there. Just when you're ready to give up, somebody will throw a little tidbit out there that kind of gets the fire going again. Most people in my position would have just simply buried the bones in an unmarked grave and, and walked away. I can't do that. I don't know why. Maybe I care too much, but I, I just can't. There's somebody out there that knows something that it's going to take something to nudge their memory enough to make them make the call. Update. On April 25th, 2021, just three days before this episode of Unsolved Mysteries was scheduled to be released, the Newton County Coroner's Office officially announced a positive identification for one of the two nameless male victims of Larry Eiler. The victim, known as Brad Doe for nearly 38 years, was revealed to be John Ingram Brandenburg Jr. of Chicago, Illinois. He was identified through a collaboration with the DNA Doe Project and the use of genetic genealogy. John, or Johnny as his mother called him, was 19 years of age when he disappeared. His family has been searching for him ever since and is relieved that this mystery has been solved. To see a facial reconstruction image of the remaining unidentified victim, Adam Doe, or if you have any information about his identity, contact the Newton County Coroner's Office at 219-285-2515 or submit a tip at unsolved.com. Next on Unsolved Mysteries. The first thing I asked him was, is there a purse there? Is there a coat there? Is there cigarettes there? And he said, yes, yes, and yes. And then instantly I knew something was wrong. Unsolved Mysteries is a production of Cosgrove Muir Productions and Cadence 13. It is executive produced by Terry Dunmuir and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Lloyd Lockridge, Christine Lenig, Courtney Ennis, and Paige Heimson. The story producer for this episode was Caitlin Cutt, and it was edited by Christopher Buchanan. From Cadence 13, editing, mixing, and mastering by Chris Basil, Andy Jaskowitz, and Bill Schultz. Production support by Sean Cherry and Ian Mont. Artwork and design is by Kurt Courtney. Publicity by Josephina Francis and Hilary Schuff. The original theme music was composed by Gary Malkin and Michael Boyd. 
Thanks for listening to episode 11 of Unsolved Mysteries. Update. Adam Doe has been identified as Keith Lavelle Bibbs. Keith was 17 years old at the time of his disappearance from Chicago and was identified through the Identify Indiana Initiative, the DNA Doe Project, and the Indiana State Police Lab. Investigators worked with his family earlier this year to make a DNA match.